to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Okay, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and my pleasure today to welcome Michael Crawley, who is the foreign affairs correspondent for Time Magazine, a Yale graduate, although we won't discuss that here. Uh, he worked for the New Republic, covering domestic politics and foreign affairs. Uh, right now, as, he's, as he puts it, he covers the world from Washington. Uh, travels a lot, but the thing is that he is uh, the person that Time Magazine has focused especially on foreign affairs. Those of you who are media files, and I suspect most of you in this room are, know that Time Magazine has been going through a hard time. And the fact that uh, Michael is their guy means that they have, uh, they have chosen him. And that is something that was, you know, believe me, keeping a job at Time Magazine these days is not an easy thing to do. So, Michael, welcome. We're Thank very you. glad to have you. And, thank uh, you. And the floor is yours. Great. Well, it's such an honor uh, and pleasure to be here, and thank you for that kind introduction, and thank you all for coming and, and for your interest. Um, I'll open by saying that uh, uh, we can talk more about this if there's interest asking me in the Q&A, but I think there are reasons for optimism, and actually morale at time is pretty good now. And if you're interested, I can talk to you about why uh, we think it's possible the worst is behind us. And, um, and I think the magazine actually is doing great work. And the website has a bunch of stuff to get you to click on it really fast. And you might not remember you ever read it, but actually I think it has more lasting and interesting and memorable stuff than it's had in a long time. So uh, for those of you who are interested in the um, mechanics of the company and the industry, I'm happy to answer questions about it. Uh, if you're interested. But why don't I uh, talk for just a few minutes and then uh, just to kind of bring things to life, we're going to do you know, 20 quick slides from a big trip I recently took and I'll blaze through them fast. It won't be like sitting through someone's vacation photos, but just to kind of make things a little more tangible. Um, but uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about my background and how I got here. I actually, my background is in politics. Um, I was crazy for politics as a teenager and uh, grew up reading uh, old copies of the New Republic magazine and the Washington Monthly. My dad, being a pack rat, had huge piles of up in the attic. And I was maybe the only, or one of very few 17-year-olds who would come home at the holidays and spend all night reading five-year-old New Republics. Uh, and I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I was very fortunate in that regard. I worked uh, as an editor, at the at reporter and editor at the Yale Daily News, uh, and actually kind of got my start here in Boston. I was at the Phoenix for a couple years, may it rest in peace, it, uh, but had a great time. And then I went to the Globe for a year. Uh, I covered the State House there and some national politics. I covered Bill Bradley's presidential campaign for a while, Steve Forbes's presidential campaign for a while. So the first airplanes I rode around on were campaign planes. Um, I uh, went to the New Republic in Washington and had a very happy time there writing kind of fulfilling my dream of working at the magazine that really shaped my thinking, um, which is to say um, analysis, fun writing, uh, kind of telling, uh, kind of writing about what's really happening. I never was that interested in the uh, pyramid structure of news writing and um, kind of presenting the facts really fast, um, but, but having some fun with it and having some voice, although I was never um, an ideologue. I didn't get into this for um, to share my opinions, really. Um, so, uh, so I covered Congress, Washington. I did a lot of profiles, culture of Washington, profiles of politicians, and really, I think the pinnacle of it for me, as it was for so many journalists of my generation, was the 2008 presidential campaign. And I spent a lot of time in Iowa, in particular, um, particularly with Hillary Clinton, and and. The, the Clinton and Obama campaigns were sort of informally divided between myself and a colleague, and he had Obama. And, you know, there were times when I felt like Obama was the better story and I was missing out. But I had to say the fall of the Clinton empire was just an incredible thing to watch. And, and, it, and it didn't happen all in one blow. I'll never forget the New Hampshire primary uh, when I'd literally gone on television that day. And, you know, with all uh, uh, regret and penance for this, I think I referred to her defeat 
in the primary whose results were coming that night, you know, in the past tense. The reason she lost was because the polls all said she was going to get clobbered. And seeing the emotion in, on, among her staff and in that room when she came back and won was incredible. So I, I'm leading up to the point that I think that I saw it was as good as it was going to get in uh, political and campaign journalism. I don't know that I was ever going to um, top that. And in addition, the 2008 campaign was very much arguably even fundamentally uh, a foreign policy campaign, particularly that primary. Um, it was the Iraq war that got Barack Obama into it. It, it gave him the opening to defeat Hillary, who, you know, the, you think of Hillary Clinton today and how unstoppable she looks. It was pretty similar back then, except you had this big but, and the but was her vote to authorize the, uh, to authorize the use of force against Iraq. And that was the um, the, wi the, the wind under Obama's wings and really defined everything about that campaign. You know, when Obama talked about uh, hope and new ways of thinking and throwing out the old Washington establishment that was stuck in its box of, of analysis and, and wrong-headed decision-making, it all flowed from Iraq and this idea that Hillary Clinton, who supposedly was this political genius, had fallen prey to the groupthink of Washington, had been told allegedly in Obama's telling, by her consultants, uh, the smart thing to do is to vote for this war, and it and it turned into a catastrophe. So, I started to cover uh, foreign affairs for the New Republic, and uh, uh, moved to Time Magazine in um, March of 2010, and went back to covering politics for a while at the behest of an editor. And I have to say, I should have fought it harder because I just realized I was done with politics, and I didn't. Um, it just didn't feel like I was throwing my fastball anymore. So I've kind of fought my way back to the uh, foreign policy and national security beat, and I'll talk very briefly about that. I'll tell you about a great trip I just took with John Kerry, and then I'll, uh, I'll look forward to your questions. Um, so as Alex said, I think of my job now as kind of explaining or covering foreign policy and national security policymaking from Washington, in Washington. So it's what what is America doing in the world as seen from Washington? And when I write my stories, um, now they've, there are exceptions to this and we can talk about some of them, but uh, I generally try to think of it as a story about Barack Obama, John Kerry, the National Security Council, um, and how they're reacting to interfacing with the outside world. So in the newest issue of Time, uh, which you can buy on the newsstand, if you subscribe, you can read it online. Eventually, I think it will be free online. I have a long feature on the supreme leader of Iran. And I was, as I often am, greatly assisted by reporting from a Time correspondent in the region who went to Tehran and did some of the on-the-ground reporting, which was great. And I have to say, Time still does have people overseas, nothing like they did 20, 30 years ago. But we have some really talented people who are doing really good work. And by the way, a lot of that stuff is on our website. I think our international coverage online is, is quite good. So I recommend it to you. Uh, with, with her help, I did a story about the Supreme Leader, but it was really a story about the Obama administration's nuclear negotiations with Iran. And can, will this guy ever really do a deal? And trying to understand him better. We see a lot of uh, Rouhani, the president, and Zarif, the foreign minister. Zarif goes on Meet the Press. Um, he talks to NPR. He is uh, a very fluent and charming English speaker and uh, presents a quite reasonable and moderate face. The Supreme Leader is a totally different can of worms. He is the su successor to Ayatollah Khomeini. He is the guardian of the Islamic Revolution. Um, he's the kind of person who thinks you should be arrested if you post a video of yourself on YouTube dancing around Tehran, or at least if you're a woman dancing around and you're not covered and you're dancing with men. Um, but so that story about the leader of Iran is, for me, my touchstone is the president and John Kerry, and how should they think about how they interact with the Iranians, and where are the nuclear negotiations headed? Uh, so, so that's something I really love to do. Uh, and, and what did you conclude? Well, I concluded, okay, it, it, he's, a, he's a very mysterious guy. And on one level, we know what he thinks. He's an ideologue. And his, his rhetoric and everything about his experience, including the fact that he was tortured in one of the Shah's prisons by the Shah's U.S. trained and funded security service. Uh, and, and an experience 
which probably makes him feel that in a way America indirectly tortured him when he was kind of a kind of an Islamic revolutionary activist. He thinks that America is actually evil. I mean, and I think in some theological way, he's a deeply religious man. He believes that we only have bad intentions for Iran, that our goal is to manipulate and subjugate Iran. Um, there is some evidence, historical evidence for this view, and I think it's useful for Americans to understand why he might think something like that. And ultimately, and again, not totally unjustifiably, he believes that our end goal is to get rid of him. And he's heard years of talk in Washington about regime change. There's a little less now than there was in the Bush-Cheney era. Uh, but I think that he thinks even the nuclear negotiations are a foot in the door uh, to start eroding his power and authority to normalize relations in between Iran and America in a way that empowers the moderates who oppose his view of Iranian society and essentially to get and eventually to get rid of him. So he's in this very interesting bind. I, I won't go on too much longer about it, and if you're curious, please ask me, where he needs a deal to get the sanctions lifted to make sure the economy doesn't collapse and the people don't rise up in anger because their economy is in such bad shape. On the other hand, he's very suspicious about a closer relationship with America because he thinks, I think he's used language almost um, verbatim to this effect, that we're just going to stab Iran in the back first chance we get, meaning him. And furthermore, that if we lift the sanctions and the Iranian economy booms and globalizes and all these outside forces come in, well, that's, a that's modernity, which is a huge threat to his view, which is very anti-modern, uh, which is very much about traditional Islamic values. Um, so I, I come away pessimistic, but you can argue a good case that, you know, as Gary Seymour at the Balfour Center says, the key for Rouhani and Zarif is to argue to him, you are more threatened by not doing a deal in the form of increased sanctions, more economic pain, and the possibility for social unrest that will topple you, then you are threatened by a deal where your economy normalizes a little bit, there's more foreign influence, and you will have to make concessions on your nuclear program that will anger hardliners. There are people who are even greater hardliners than he is, and they are also a threat to his power if he's seen as moving too far um, in the Zarif Rouhani direction. So without getting any further into the weeds on that, uh, I'm happy to talk more about it if you, if you have questions. It's a fascinating subject to me. Um, so uh, the other thing I do is I occasionally travel with John Kerry. And I have about two dozen slides that I'm going to go through really fast, mindful of uh, the fact that nobody, like I said, wants to be bored. And I thought I could. Uh, put it into a full screen slideshow kind of thing, but now I'm not seeing, oh wait, let's see. Okay. So um, this was John Kerry's trip, uh, and I'll delete this uh, after this very brief introduction. Uh, John Kerry went to the Middle East to build the anti-ISIS coalition um, in early September. So we, uh, I think, got to Baghdad, which you'll see in a moment, the day the president gave his primetime address saying we're now bombing ISIS in both Iraq and Syria and essentially this is it, we're going to get them. And Kerry's mission was uh, to conduct diplomacy, especially among um, Gulf state Arab countries, to show that we were not um, embarking on unilateral military action, which some might say was uh, an effort to contrast what we're doing with the um, with the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which was at least perceived as a very unilateral action, although that's a contentious point. Um, uh, so I think to conduct genuine diplomacy, to look at these leaders, say, are you on board? What will you do for us? And I think also to actually, there's a kind of glorified photo op, almost political campaign element of it. So to make sure the world sees the pictures of John Kerry conducting this diplomacy um, to show America is not just rashly acting on its own and look at all the friends we have. Um, some of these pictures are just slightly cool and will give you the flavor of traveling on a trip like this. Uh, so I'm going to go quickly. I apologize, but I think it's better to go too fast than to bore you. And we're off to a great start. And uh, okay, play. I don't know what's going to happen. You're going to get Ken Burns effect and all this stuff. Um, so this is uh, Carrie flies on an Air Force 757. This is Andrew's Air Force Base where you depart. You fly out there and sit around for a couple hours. Carrie shows up and then you sprint onto the plane and off you go. Uh, we don't need music. 
<laughs> and I didn't do a test run. If we run into a bunch of annoying glitches, I'll just bail out on the thing uh, rather than subject you to too much of it. Go to the next slide, please. Go to the next slide. Okay, let me try it this way. You're not going to get the full screen, but you can still see. Uh, we flew to Amman, Jordan, and um, we our first real stop was Baghdad, where Kerry was going to meet with uh, the new Prime Minister Abadi and some other members of the government. Uh, to fly to Baghdad, you actually have to transfer to a military cargo jet because the official 757, um, although it looks the other plane looks sleeker and more maneuverable, um, actually doesn't have countermeasures and um, other uh, and and it's not as maneuverable as this one, which will keep you safer in case somebody on the ground tries to shoot at us. So we pile in, the reporters are all sitting here, the staff is on the other wall, that's Secretary Kerry, that's John Finer, who is his deputy chief of staff, he travels with him on trips, so he has a Washington chief of staff and Finer goes with him on the trips. Kerry sits there working, it's a very weird experience, there are no windows, um, and uh, the whole thing is incredibly surreal. Uh, we land in Baghdad and take helicopters into the green zone. Uh, the airport is not in the, there's this kind of a secured American area at the airport, uh, but the green zone is a helicopter flight away. You fly with the doors open, it's incredible. You wonder if it's safe. Uh, this is, um, I think, uh, western Baghdad near the airport, which is a heavily Sunni area. It looked calm and fine. I didn't see, things weren't on fire. Although, uh, I think two or three car bombs blew up in Baghdad that day, and maybe a dozen people were killed. Um, so this is Kerry meeting with the body and all their staff and all the press. There's a horde of press back here I wasn't able to get a picture of. This is the um, famous uh, Republican palace that we dropped some bombs through the roof of and uh, turned into the headquarters of the American occupation for several years. And Kerry, I, th I don't know if he met with the body there or someone else. I thought I would throw that in to amuse you. This is the, uh, how people who sit in their desk in Washington most of the time feel like warriors every now and then. <laughs> um, flying back to the airport, uh, this was an old Saddam palace. This is our ride back to Amman. Next up was Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Jeddah is the kind of coastal business uh, capital of the country, the government capital. Cap the, the, the political capital is Riyadh in the middle of the desert. Jeddah was the site of a Gulf, um, uh, Gulf uh, GCC, Gulf something cooperation, Gulf Cooperation Council meeting, which is essentially the Gulf state Arabs coming to get together and say, what can we do about ISIS? And what was critical for this was to, this was probably the most important part of the coalition building element for Kerry, was this meeting and the photo op that followed it, which I'll have a picture of. Uh, this is just flavor of the um, Royal Terminal uh, in Jeddah at the airport. Uh, I'm, uh, I hope you'll forgive me, this is Michael Gordon of the New York Times, and since everyone here is very interested in how uh, the news is produced, just gives you some of the flavor. Michael Gordon, who is sleeping with his laptop open, he'd probably just filed. We're in Jeddah, we're waiting for the uh, GCC press conference. Michael Gordon never stops working. It's incredible, he's a machine. I collapsed when we got back to Amman after flying to, uh, after going to Baghdad, and he stayed up for six more hours and filed another story. I don't know how he does it, and he's at least 20 years older than me, or 15 years older. Um, Royal Palace in Jeddah, I got to be on the uh, on pool duty when Kerry went to see the king, and I, I snapped a photograph I probably was not supposed to. I'm going to keep moving fast. That's me and Elise Labatt from CNN in Saudi Arabia. This is the photo op that Kerry got in Jeddah, and this is the U.S. Arab coalition vows to crush Islamic State. Now, this is a um, Saudi newspaper. It's not uh, seen... Uh, all over the world, of course, but this is really what I think the, the, the goal of the trip was about, was demonstrating it's not America uh, waging an, a new crusade in the Muslim world. Look who's standing side by side with us. Um, uh, we flew to Ankara after that, and uh, Kerry met with officials there. Um, I'll just pause here to tell you an interesting anecdote. The, um, we were, we were urged when we went to Turkey to be careful about how we wrote about Turkey's role in the coalition against ISIS because there were still something like 49 Turks who were being held captive uh, hostages by ISIS who had been captured when ISIS overran Mosul. And um, I'm realizing now the conversation was on the rec off the record, so I'll be very cryptic, but one of the interesting parts of this trip was, and we can talk more about it if you guys want to, Kerry and his aides coming back and after every stop, you know, everyone had filed their stories, and there was some new iteration of what we had all written, and there, of course there was some new iteration of their complaint, and their feeling that we were covering it wrong. And there was, I'll just say, a general sense of frustration about 
at stories saying that Turkey was not being very cooperative in the coalition and we were reminded that there are these hostages and they have to be uh, very careful about not provoking ISIS too much, although at the same time we were also urged not to write about the hostages because that would increase their value and put their lives in danger. So we were kind of being asked not to write anything about Turkey and um, that didn't really happen. But I can tell you more about that. I won't name this reporter, but you may have already seen him in an earlier photograph. This is uh, sleeping on the plane after having uh, stayed up all night and filed. And this was pretty typical uh, with a blanket over his head. Uh, we went to Egypt, that's Takrir Square, more Cairo. Insane uh, uh, Egyptian media I'd never seen. I mean, even at Hillary Clinton's farewell speech when she left the 2008 campaign, I'd never seen half that many cameras. Uh, just a handful more. That's Jen Psaki, who is with us everywhere. She's the Chief State De Department spokesperson and actually an incredibly uh, lovely person who I find in the annals of uh, press handlers one of the most pleasant, honest, um, easy to deal with people I've, I've dealt with. And there's Michael Gordon somehow still moving. <laughs> and uh, just uh, about two more, just a little more on the flavor of mechanics. I don't know why Michael's in every picture, but here he is again. Um, in Paris, and this is, I just wanted to, you guys to see a little bit kind of where we file and how it works. Uh, Carrie met um, with the, uh, this is the US ambassador's residence in Paris in a lovely neighborhood, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever been in, and possibly the most luxurious filing center um, uh, the press has ever worked in. So we were waiting for Carrie to come out and sit down and have a little round table with us. So we're all set up in these tables with these you know beautiful tapestries everywhere and this kind of like fine china or whatever it is. Uh, and there's power strips everywhere, and, uh, and, and that's the guy from Reuters, that's Michael Gordon, and that's an AP photographer all filing away. And here's where we went to, to sit down with Carrie, and you can see this absolutely Versailles kind of style, sumptuous room. And Carrie came in and did a kind of hour-long um, uh, backgrounder with us. And Lara Jakes Jordan of the Associated Press, also in the same place, and home again. So uh, I hope that didn't take too much time and was interesting for you. Um, so with that, I think I've gone over a little bit my planned uh, introductory spiel time, and I really want you all to be able to ask questions. So okay. why don't we dive right in? I'm going to start, and um, um, then we will have a broader questioning. But I would like for you to take those few minutes to talk about Time Magazine and what its state is now, because I think that there was a real sense that it could be, you know, uh, in very great jeopardy when Time Warner split up and so Yeah. So just in case anyone here isn't up to speed, uh, Time Inc. was the magazine division of Time Warner, which of course is a giant, um, I don't know what you would call it, you know, entertainment conglomerate. And Time Inc. consists of Time, Sports Illustrated, People, Fortune, um, dozens of titles, many of which I've never laid eyes on, frankly. Uh, Time Warner, uh, which is a, a growing, um, very profitable company, decided that uh, we were not growing uh, we are still we are still profitable, uh, but nothing like we were 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, didn't want us holding back their growth and uh, causing annoying questions from shareholders anymore. So we were spun off. So it used to be if you bought stock in Time Warner, you also essentially owned some of Time Inc. because it was part of Time Warner. Now you can call your broker and buy stock in Time Inc. We're a standalone company. Uh, this created a lot of angst because we had gone from being part of a big, very profitable uh, company that could, there was just a big cushion there to the wolves of Wall Street. Um, the actual transition has not really changed life day to day at time at all. What changed was after it became clear the spin was going to happen and it was announced, um, there was a new sense of urgency about digital that had not been there. Um, when I arrived at Time in 2010, there was a lot of talk about the urgency of digital, and they did some things to uh, make the website more interesting and more energetic, but it never really felt like a zealous mission, and now it really does. And there are, uh, they invested, there are tons of people, our website is 24-7. Uh, it's, you know, if you have, I kind of think of the vision people have of the Huffington Post. It's always on. The minute something happens, they've got like three big headlines. That's what our site is like now. And uh, it's working. Our audience is booming. Um, we are bringing in more digital ad revenue, although as everyone knows, uh, digital ad revenue is not what print ad revenue is. Um, but uh, there have been uh, there have been a bunch of buyouts. The staff is smaller, particularly the kind of old print magazine staff, but the digital, mag the digital staff is bigger than ever. Uh, I would say that it, 
feels like a very uncertain time. Some of the worst things that I've read feel too negative. I, I do think that there are reasons for hope um, in the context of a very uncertain media environment for everyone. And no one knows whose business model is going to work and isn't going to work. I don't think it's all hope is lost. I really don't. Uh, and, you know, so New York Magazine did a big story about Time Inc. a few weeks ago, and there was a quote in there comparing us to a rock. And um, <laughs> that was not great for morale, but, but, it, but it also neglected to mention um, the fact that our stock price has actually basically held up. Uh, we were told by the corporate leadership before the spinoff, brace yourself because we have this IPO price. It was basically an IPO not like Twitter uh, or Facebook or Alibaba, um, unfortunately. But brace yourself because the stock is going to plunge because a lot of funds that own Time Warner, they just can't own Time Inc. because it's, you're a different kind of company. You don't fit into the portfolio the same way. Um, and that never happened. And actually, the stock is doing OK. So somebody is putting money behind us. Um, uh, it, it's more complicated than that, uh, of course. But I guess I would say that um, there's a lot of uncertainty. I actually think morale feels better than it did a year or two ago before it felt like they at least had a digital strategy that had a theoretical um, uh, logic to it and was working numerically. And so we have that. The, the worst thing about what they did, it seemed to me, for Time Inc.'s perspective, was to load you guys up with debt. Yeah. That, I thought, was a cheap shot. And uh, that was a bummer. You were, you were, and you've got that now. 1.3 billion. Now, how is that going to be dealt with. Well, Alex, now you're, um, you know, the old saying, I was told there would be no numbers. Um, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't really know what to say about it, except that it was on the high end of the amount of debt we were told, you know, that, that, that analysts were saying before the spinoff would be tolerable. So I remember people saying if it was more like $500 million in debt, that's pretty good. You can handle that. If it's a billion and starts to get above a billion, that's going to be really hard. And if it's 1.5 or more, forget it. And we ended up with like 1.3. So we were kind of in the high end of what people were saying was sustainable. Um, there is a corporate spin on this that I'm going to forget, but there's some reason why debt is good. There's some reason why they say debt is good. And I should probably be able to tell you, if you look in the New York Magazine story, I think Joe Rip is in there saying there's something good about debt. If you, if you believe that, we've got some Brooklyn Bridge stock that we would like to do. Um, when you talk about foreign affairs these days and the United States, Obama is being criticized heavily from every corner of the United States and every political perspective for his handling of foreign affairs. Do you share that view? Well, I, I guess I'm... I'm I'm sympathetic to him in the sense that I do think it's an extraordinarily difficult moment in the world. And, and that the U.S. and that, you know, I, I, I know people say at some point you have to stop blaming Bush. And believe me, I don't, I don't carry water for the president. I worked at the New Republic. It's a left-leaning magazine, but I'm not an ideologue. I'm not very political. Um, but I do find myself saying he came into office with this economic catastrophe, two wars raging, the world doesn't trust us. Um, uh, Iraq, we can talk more about this. I, I think it likely was a mistake to leave Iraq as quickly as he did. But it's not like he inherited a healthy, functioning Iraq. Um, uh, Afghanistan, in hindsight, may have been an insoluble problem. Um, and then you had the Arab Spring, which was this essentially, you know, once in a generation, maybe more than a generation, upheaval that just scrambled, just scrambled an entire region, the most, you know, the most strategically sensitive, volatile, dangerous region in, in the world, uh, just thrown into total chaos. And I, I feel like he has not handled everything ideally, but no one would. And in general, I'm sympathetic to the problems that he inherited. Um, you know, just to take an example, I was talking to some very smart people uh, recently about this whole thing to do with the red line, right? So he said that if uh, Bashar Assad crossed this red line in Syria, you know, there would be serious consequences. Well, it's not, so in hindsight, it's not really clear he was supposed to say mm -hmm. 
red line or that he meant to say red line or that it was in his talking points. So he kind of ad-libbed and he was a little sloppy and he drew a red line he may not have wanted to draw. That's very bad. That's a big mistake. But presidents, everyone speaking publicly, they make mistakes. We all know Joe Biden went off message a little bit when he was up here recently. Um, but that's Joe Biden. I won't hold him to a Joe Biden standard. I'll hold him to a higher standard, but even by that standard. But then that thing took on a life of its own. And, and in the American media and in the region, in the Gulf states, it became this idea that Obama um, makes promises he won't keep and you can't trust him and he's, he's not a real ally and he doesn't have your back. And I just feel like it just was blown way out of proportion. I think the, the right way to think of it was he never meant to set that red line. And he had a bad day at this press conference. Um, but was it revealing of him as some kind of squid who will sell you out in a moment's notice? I, I don't think it was that simple. So, I, you know, what you guys are probably hearing, it's hard to sum it up. What you're probably hearing from me is that I'm more sympathetic to him than a lot of people. I guess I am. Let's open it to questions, and we're, I'm going to ask uh, students have to have the first shot. Yeah. Hi, I'm Natalie Branham. I'm mid-career at the Kennedy School, Hi. and also my background is in journalism. My question, um, how do you deal with the difficulty at times in obtaining information about such sensitive subjects, and especially when national security is involved, do you feel like, how do you deal with you know possible manipulation for yeah. political gain and all of those issues, yeah. and are American journalists doing a good enough job of mm -hmm. covering foreign policy right now? Um, I think on the f on the second question, I actually think there's good foreign policy reporting now, and um, it's it's too bad there aren't more. We've seen this these cuts in foreign bureaus, and there are fewer foreign correspondents than there were, and a lot of newspapers, for instance, the Boston Globe, would have an enormous foreign team a generation ago, and they don't, and that's a loss. That said, the foreign correspondents that I read are really good. Um, you know, right right away, I think of um, at the New York Times, um, uh, is it uh, Ann Barnard, Ann Barnard, who's, who's in, been in Syria and just doing amazing coverage there. Uh, Jody mm -hmm. Rudoran in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, 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 so uh, I think that, and I think that the analytical coverage you get out of Washington is actually pretty good. Um, the, the Wall Street Journal, I would single out for doing um, some great kind of behind-the-scenes reporting on uh, how decisions are being made on foreign policy, and I think it's pretty tough. Um, so I wish that there were more foreign correspondents. You don't know what stories are being missed by the fact that they're not there. Um, but you know, for instance, uh, people say, "Where did I ISIS come from?" You know, came out of nowhere, caught us by surprise. Well, you know, our woman in uh, Beirut, uh, Aaron Baker, who's really talented. She did a long feature story in Baghdadi in like March of this year. So remember, Mosul fell in June. And that was kind of the moment for the lay person who's not a news, foreign policy news specialist to say, whoa, who are these guys? What's going on? And we, we were on the Baghdadi case months before that. Um, and it may have been earlier than March. It might have been January or, or February. Uh, you know, on the classified information side, you know, that's definitely gotten a lot harder. And you're probably familiar with the fact that there were some high profile leaks and the administration freaked out. Barack Obama has been really hard on whistleblowers um, and has engendered a lot of resentment from the press uh, as a result. Um, and, and because there have been investigations and prosecutions of leaks in this administration, there's a real uh, there's a real sensitivity on the part of people who know things uh, about talking about them, or even there, there's this kind of paranoia where you know you email somebody in the government and like they write you back and they they you know they'll CC a press person. Uh, I think just as a way of you know it's like if you're approached in a in a totalitarian state by somebody who wants you to come over and join the opposition, like you immediately. You 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 know you return the call with the secret police on the line, so they know that you're not saying anything bad. I mean, it feels a little bit that way. That if you don't have a really good relationship with somebody, they know they can completely trust you and control the circumstances of your conversation, where they're not going to get in trouble. Um, it's really hard to get them to talk. And finally, on the manipulation, 
um, you know, that exists in political reporting and, and the kind of reporting that I do. And I just think you have to balance it and you have to always be aware of what the agenda of the person you're talking to is. Um, and, um, and kind of, and kind of just don't present statement, your sources statements or spin as fact without counter counterbalancing it. And the key to that is being informed and just knowing your subject matter. And I think you're more likely to fall into that trap if you're someone who's writing loads of short stories about tons of different topics than if you really kind of get immersed in things. And I prefer to be immersed in things. So, um, that's the best safeguard against it. Students, yes. My name is Malik Sirajakura, I was a student, an MPA student, and I am ex-journalist. My question is like, uh, because we as journalists, uh, when we cover conflicts, you know, we tend to have a lot of frank conversations with uh, people on the ground. What do you think about the US policy in terms of arming the moderate Sunni militias? You know, we, it, there's a sense of deja vu taking us back to Charlie Wilson's war. Do you think this, these Sunni militias will, you know, turn to be another form of ISIS someday? What's your in Iraq. You mean in Iraq? Iraq. Yeah. Well, well, so those are the, I guess those are two different questions. You know, Iraq and Syria are two different problems. And, you know, in the case of Iraq, so I take your point, and clearly when you, um, when you arm people to be your proxy fighters, you don't know what's going to happen, and you don't know if you're going to lose control of them. And we essentially created, it's only a slight oversimplification, we essentially created Al-Qaeda, uh, by turning the Afghan Mujahideen into our proxy army against the Soviets uh, with the help of the Pakistanis. There is a precedent in Iraq where getting the Sunni tribes to turn against the radicals, to turn against Al-Qaeda in the kind of 2007 to 2009 frame actually worked quite effectively. And there, w there wasn't tremendous blowback as a result. Um, so we paid them, uh, we armed them, uh, and we said, go get them, and, and essentially defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq, obviously didn't eliminate them because al-Qaeda in Iraq sort of reconstituted and, and was the, the basis of what is now ISIS. Um, but that actually worked pretty well, and I think that it's hard to imagine a scenario where ISIS gets kicked out of northern and western Iraq again without the help of the Sunni tribes um, fighting them back. Uh, uh, the, Iraqi, the Iraqi security forces are a long way from being trained sufficiently to do that well. Mm -hmm. You hear people say it's going to take a year before the Iraqi army basically is a, is a fighting force that we can trust. And it's also kind of plagued by this sectarian problem where you have a lot of Shiites in the Iraqi military and for them to go into Sunni areas and start fighting ISIS. Um, is very dicey because Sunnis in those areas don't like Shiites coming in with guns shooting other Sunnis and inevitably they're going to kill civilians accidentally and there's going to be uh, uh, unintended consequences and you're going to have that sectarianism. So, there, so there's always the danger that you describe but, but there's the precedent and it takes away this component of sectarianism which is really the gasoline that's fueling the fire throughout that region the Sunni-Shiite um, divide. So I, I tend to think it, it's probably something we have to do and that the benefits, the likely benefits probably outweigh the risks. In Syria, it's very different. We have a lot less visibility into who's there, what's going on. Um, there's no precedent for it. And in fact, the precedent in Syria runs somewhat in the other direction, which is to say that the U.S. to a small degree and to a much larger degree are Gulf state um, allies, the Saudis, um, uh, uh, the Qataris, I guess they're basically our allies, it's complicated, um, have sent a lot of money and arms to uh, Sunni groups fighting the Assad regime. Bashar Assad is Alawite, which is a kind of a, a sect of, a Shiite sect. So for all intents and purposes, this discussion, he's a Shiite aligned with Iran. Um, and that did breed ISIS. And those arms and weapons are sloshing around with all, in all kinds of bad, and, and not only ISIS, we don't even talk about Al-Qaeda in Syria anymore. They, they go by the name of al-Nusra, and there's this, there's this kind of cell known as the Khorasan group that you may have seen in the news when we, we went in and bombed ISIS in Syria. We said, by the way, we're also bombing the Khorasan group. So we don't even talk about al-Nusra al that much anymore. So the bottom line of all that is that I think that it makes sense in Iraq. There's a precedent. Um, we, we know these people. We've worked with them before. 
And the alternative is an Iraqi security force that I don't have a lot of confidence in and raises this sectarian problem. In Syria, the precedent is not great. We know a lot less about who these people are. And I just have to say there's not, I don't think there's sort of a smart answer to how you make it work in Syria. You know, you can, if you talk to the sort of the policy experts, they can say this is, they give you a plan. This is kind of how we can get Iraq, we kick out ISIS and get Iraq working again and get it stabilized. Um, and in Syria, it's kind of like not clear, and we're going to have to experiment. Do you subscribe to the view that if we had intervened in Syria earlier, we would have prevented ISIS from sort of taking over these, uh, the, the rebellion? So here's where, again, you know, some of you may walk out thinking I'm an apologist for the president. Um, I'm sympathetic to his argument. It, 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 um, now, I will say that, well, I guess in its particulars, the argument has never convinced me. In other words, I, I just I sympathize with the president's argument that the moderates were kind of a ragtag bunch, not guys with a lot of, by and large, military training, not a lot of reason to think if you gave them heavy armaments, they would sort of know what to do with it. Their record was really, it was unfortunately kind of a Keystone Cops scenario. Now, that's what I know. On the other side, and, and it's why I don't have high conviction in this opinion, you have Hillary Clinton, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, and I believe uh, Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who all in late 2012 went to the president and said, we should probably do this. We, we, should, we should arm up the moderate rebels. And they're all seeing great intelligence, as is the president. So there had to be some compelling argument for why this could work. In other words, when the president says, these guys were a bunch of bakers and pediatricians, and you know we were going to give them anti-tank missiles, and we were going to turn them into this crack fighting force, and it was ridiculous. He's obviously setting up a straw man, because there's no way Hillary, Petraeus, Panetta, Dempsey, and a whole bunch of other people would have been on board for that plan if that was all they knew. They had to have reason to think it would work. But I've never seen the argument in its particulars in a compelling way that convinced me that it could work. Hmm. Students, yes. So my name is Roberto Simon. I'm an MVP candidate here at the Kennedy School. A journalist from Brazil as well. I used to work with the international basketball. We studied Sao Paulo, which is a big uh, national newspaper in Brazil. And my question to you is, I'm always fascinated how big media outlets in English-speaking countries like Time Magazine, New York Times, now reach a truly global audience. So, um, in this sense, when you're writing your stories, do you think that maybe someone who's reading this is, say, in Sao Paulo or Tokyo, does this change your calculations? And uh, second, do you think um, the, these media, these companies are up to the task in the sense, are they being too American, hmm. having a too American approach, or British financial mm -hmm. times and economics? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, this is one of the strange uh, ironies of this moment we're in, where suddenly we, our potential audience is, you know, theoretically six billion or five billion or four billion, whoever, however many people are. I guess if you adjust for literacy and online access, it's lower. But you take my point. We have this enormous global audience. And um, it's one reason why web traffic is booming, I think, because it's not just national, it's international. Um, and you'll see, um, for instance, you know, the New York Times has, you can change your setting on the home page to make it your, it's the international New York Times instead of the, the domestic. So I, there are news organizations that are thinking about this. Who's our audience and what face do we want to present to them? In terms of the individual stories and how I write, um, I don't, you know, frankly, I just, I, I don't think, I don't think so much about the international audience. I, I just feel like, particularly for time, it's a broad audience to begin with. And I want the stories I write to be accessible to lay readers and non-specialists. And I feel like, by and large, anything that's going to work for somebody far outside of Washington um, should work for someone in another country uh, who is English fluent. And I think there's only so much you can do to, to go beyond. I sort of don't know how I would go beyond that. I will say, I mean, this is kind of a, a narrow anecdotal thing, but, it, but it's a reminder of the audience and the power it has. Um, I'll tell you just a short story. In February, I uh, went to Mexico City and I profiled the uh, then new Mexican president, Enrique Peña Nieto, who is doing a lot of really interesting things, interesting and controversial. The, the, the main one is 
um, allowing private corporate investment in the, in the country's oil industry, which was um, nationalized uh, uh, after years of sort of exploitation by, you know, pseudo-colonial powers. And um, we did a story about him, put him on the cover of the international edition. Time will frequently... Uh, so we have a domestic edition and an international edition, and the, the domestic cover will frequently be something different from what goes on the other. I think there's Europe, Asia, and uh, and Latin America, and I don't know if we've ever had four different covers, but we frequently will have one for the U.S. and three for the other countries. So my story ran inside the domestic edition, but was not on the cover, and the cover was something like, I don't know, should your kid play football or something like that. I often lose out in the domestic edition to that kind of thing. And we take heat for it and blogs make fun of us. Um, I can defend it, but I won't get into it now. The uh, Peña Nieto, at least in the Latin American edition, was on the cover. And in a cover line, which I did not write, um, and the editor who did has left time, so I won't, I'm not in danger of getting in too much trouble with him, wrote Saving Mexico, uh, which was not a cover line I would have written and one I probably would have pushed back against had I seen it before it was too late. I would have put a question mark at the end of it. You know, can Enrique Peña Nieto turn his country around and fully modernize it and will this private investment work? There are a lot of people who think that he's ruining Mexico and they were and and that cover became this sensation and my Twitter feed was just I there was nothing else in it for about a week. Uh, other than people in Mexico ranting and raving at me and calling me every name you, you can imagine and even some threats. And and the thing that I'll just, the crystallizing fact about all that is that I had 12,000 Twitter followers what, the day that story went online. And by the end of the week, I had 16,000 Twitter followers. And the 12,000 I had built up over four years. I, so 4,000, and they were almost, I mean, I, would, I, I bet they were 95% Mexicans or people from the region. So stark reminder of the power and the reach and who's reading um, but I don't think I changed the way I write the individual stories as a result. Yeah. We'll open it now. Yes. moved by the journalist, Sean Steenfeld from Istanbul. What is your overall impression uh, of the perception in Washington, D.C., whether or not the Arab Spring is over or good? Is, is that mindset changing? Well, when you say changing, changing from what baseline do you... On the, on the power echelons, that this is entering into a winter and from which there will be no return, given Egypt, Syria... Right. In other words, that the Arab Spring Libya. has been stifled and that um, authoritarian rule has replaced the, po the promise of... Democ democracy and reform, is that is that what you mean? I think that that is the prevailing sense. And, you know, to be honest, I haven't heard anyone articulated in government in quite this way, but, look, we are essentially... That's a good story for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I owe you one. Um, but, look, you know, our relations with Egypt are essentially normalized again. So that's a country that is essentially, again, a military dictatorship. Uh horrible human rights record, um, uh, you know, basically no political freedoms. They're throwing journalists in jail. And we kind of went through this brief, we sort of went through the motions of criticizing them, delaying some arms sales. We, I think we send Egypt something like $3 billion a year in military aid, and we held up some Apache helicopters for a while and some other things. But it's basically back to normal. And, uh, and, and I think we're okay with that. Frankly, I think the administration has decided that this is better than the alternative and that we're better off trying to getting stability and order of a kind that we like first. So not, you know, there's stability and order in Iran, but we don't like that kind of stability and order. But in, in countries where the opposition, like in Egypt, is the Muslim Brotherhood, is a group that we're very wary of, get stability and order first, and then through a combination of carrots and sticks, providing aid, having a channel communication and occasionally criticizing them in public, hoping that we can move them towards a more democratic and open system. Uh, to some degree, that that was our strategy in Yemen, although Yemen is now kind of upside down again. Um, so, you know, and so I don't think that there's a sense that um, the Arab Spring is still percolating or that we particularly want it to, with the exception of Iran. You know, we would love for the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring kind of came to Iran, it seems, in the form of the Green Movement in the spring of 2009 was brutally crushed. I think we didn't 
perceive it at the time as the first iteration of this larger regional movement. And the last thing I'll say is that um, I was at a kind of in a setting like this with uh, a political figure from Iran. It was off the it was off the record, so I won't be more specific. But a guy who has real relationships with the with the leadership of Iran, and was speaking very candidly. And he said he has no expectation that that will happen again anytime soon. He feels like the reform movement in Iran. And by the way, he is not he was not an apologist for the regime or the leader. Um, he's someone who would like to see. Uh, a new uprising and he would be happy to see the leader gone. He said he just doesn't, he said it will have to come from outside of the country, not inside of the country. He thinks that the movement is broken, um, its leadership is broken, and that um, people just don't want to do it again. So it's not a very optimistic picture. Yes. I find uh, one of the most interesting commentators on the Middle East is Farid Zakari. Mm -hmm, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, he seems to have sullied his, no, his uh, writing, right? <laughs> uh, the plagiarism accusations. I wonder if you have comments on that. So, I share your view of him, and I, I want to choose my words a little carefully just because he wrote for time, and we have, I think, we've probably put out statements about it. Um, he left time, some people have interpreted it as our having fired him or something, that that wasn't the case, that he, you know, there was some, I think, point of renewal where there wasn't a renewal, but it wasn't, I don't think it was to do with this. Please don't hold me to anything I'm saying. I actually don't really know the granular details, but basically, um, we, so there's an official time position and I'm not representing it right now. And I also don't know the granular details of, of why he doesn't write for us anymore, but I really don't think it was because of this. I'm sympathetic to him. I, I'm, I'm being a big softy today. Um, hopefully, you know, if you guys want, I'll, I'll tear into somebody before we're done. But um, I think he's great. I don't get. There seems to be a kind of um, animus toward him on the part of some of the people who are who are pushing this. Who who? I think he's a force for good in journalism. He's really thoughtful. He cites. Yeah, con I mean, he knows people. He does his homework. He reads deeply, obviously. I mean, the irony is that the thing he's, these latest accusations involve the idea that he's not adequately citing source material. And for instance, he's pulling facts from Wikipedia and not saying, or pulling facts from some, I don't know, uh, maybe an AP story that reported economic figures and, that, and he didn't give the AP credit. In the cases I saw, I thought there were some where he should have given more credit, ideally. I've not seen many that really felt to me like plagiarism as I think of it. Um, and I know I'm not alone in this view, although I know there are, there are dissenters. Um, but, but given that I think that there's some debate about how serious the crimes were, I step back and say, is this guy basically a force for good? And is this guy contributing something good to the world? Um, is he just some shark who's out trying to promote himself? And is he sort of a hustler? And I, to all that, I say no. I learned so much from him. He seems to really care. He's um, shedding light on things in, at a level of depth most people aren't. So I guess my gut says give, cut him a little slack. And when I look at the individual examples, I just don't see anything that is a real um, knockout blow. So I would say to him, keep your nose twice as clean. And when in doubt, make sure you cite but I don't think he should be banished from polite company. I think it would be really unfortunate to lose his voice. When you have you read Henry Kissinger's book, his new one? I haven't. It sounds very interesting. Uh, from what you've read about it, I mean, basically Kissinger was the sort of the, you know, the the creature of real politic and and making those kinds of of accommodations that you were describing, like with Egypt, for the good and the self-interest of the United States principle, maybe not, but practice and pragmatic behavior, yes. Is that the sort of basic diplomatic value system that we're operating on now? I think it is, because I think we're operating from a real position of weakness. Um, and it goes back to what I said at the, at the introduction. Um, you know, our economy is weak. Uh, our Congress doesn't want to pass foreign aid. We're cutting our military. Um, you know, the, the president and many other people say we are absolutely not in a period of decline. Um, American supremacy has often been overstated, and we kind of go through these little ups and downs, but we're not in this period of great historic decline. You know, that may or may not be the case, but 
we are certainly in a period of some near-term retrenchment that really limits our options um, at a time when other powers are rising quite quickly and asserting themselves. Um, just look at Vladimir Putin in Russia, just look at China. Uh, so I think that there, you know, to some degree, although Americans are very uh, gun-shy and chastened by what happened in Iraq in particular and very wary of foreign entanglements, I do still think there's this mentality that's a leftover from the kind of glory days of not only certain moments in the Cold War, but that kind of unipolar moment after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the kind of um, Bill Clinton second term, when we were sort of going around doing what we wanted, seemingly in the name of these noble values, and, um, and um, democracy promotion kind of had a good name. We just can't do that right now. Um, well, but but that people still have this expectation that we can go and promote American values and do the right thing everywhere. and. Um, I just think we're too hamstrung and we're forced into these unpleasant compromises like the one we have with General Sisi in Egypt. And if you would imagine Hillary Clinton as president in terms of foreign affairs. Well, you know, she has always, she would be to the right of President Obama for sure if you measure left to right in terms of willingness to use force, willingness to project American power. She's always been a greater advocate for using American force and power around the world. And this goes back a while. This is something I wrote about. I did a big story on her in 2008, I think, in which I argued to go back to what I was saying earlier about her vote for the Iraq war, which a lot of people said, you just did that because Mark Penn, your political consultant, said all the smart Democrats who are running for president are voting for this war, and you've got to do it too, because look at the people in 1991 who voted against the first Gulf War, like Sam Nunn, former future president Sam Nunn, who voted against the first Gulf War and uh, and politically speaking, it was a catastrophic vote because that war went pretty well. Um, I wrote a story saying, no, in fact, if you look back at what we know about her record, um, she has always believed in the use of American power and American force for good. And, you know, to really oversimplify it and use a word that I know is controversial, but it's like shades of that neoconservative, what we call the neoconservative ideology, that a strong America willing to blow things up sometimes can promote our values, you know, free markets and democracy, and that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be too shy about doing it. And um, even after being horribly burned by, ironically, you know, uh, after being told she'd be burned if she didn't vote for the war, she, was, she basically, she may have lost the presidency by voting for the Iraq force authorization in 2003. She did not uh, change her worldview. And in fact, I've written about this in the Obama situation room when she was Secretary of State, I don't think you can find a more hawkish person uh, consistently in those policy debates than Hillary Clinton. She, on issues from Afghanistan to Libya to Syria to a residual force in Iraq to dealing with China, she came down in the aggregate farther to the right than anyone else in the Obama campaign. Okay, and now, lastly, imagine Rand Paul as president. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, a friend of mine a year or so ago was interviewing Rand Paul, and he said, do you have any good questions for Rand? Uh, sorry, he was interviewing um, John McCain. He said, do you have any good questions for McCain? And I said, ask McCain if it was Hillary versus Rand, who would you vote for? And uh, as I recall, McCain started laughing and said something to the effect of, I'm not going to answer that question. You're trying to get me in trouble. There's your answer. I think that Rand Paul, now, so, but let me just take it one step further, because we all know that Rand Paul uh, uh, has this kind of neo-isolationist worldview. He firmly rejects the, the word isolationist, but strongly believes that we shouldn't be meddling in other countries. Um, we waste, you know, most of our foreign aid is wasted. Um, we get into wars we have no business being in the middle of. I will say that, you know, the system has a way of taking these people and as they get closer to the center of power, they morph into something more like this, you know, the, you get dragged to the center of your party, right? And you're already seeing Rand Paul saying, go after ISIS and destroy them. He's on board with bombing ISIS when he was not not long ago, and it's because he knows that uh, there are people in his party who will only tolerate so much of his neo-isolationism and his anti-interventionism, anti I think is a fairer word than neo-isolationism. -iso 
Uh, and that it, were he to get to the White House, ultimately, um, and here's the last thing I'll say on this. Think about Barack Obama, who talked about um, you know, a much smaller American footprint around the world, uh, executive authority run wild, Bush and Cheney have gone too far, our counter-terror programs are out of control. Sur he, uh, he talked about rolling back our NSA surveillance. Um, when he got to the White House, we largely had continuity on a lot of those issues. There were important exceptions like banning torture completely. Um, and now he's back in Iraq. And the gravitational force of the center of your party and the establishment and the wise men, I think, pulls you in. So Rand Paul, I don't think, would change American foreign policy in some jaw-dropping way. I think it would be quite different. But I do think everyone gets kind of pulled into the center in the end. Michael Crawley, thank you for being Thanks with so us. Thanks so much, everyone. I really appreciate it.